Well, hey, welcome to First Church. This is your first Sunday with us. My name's Chad. We're just so glad you're here. And you are a part of something that's bigger than just what's taking place here at our North Garnett campus. We have family right now meeting out at Stone Canyon, as well as those watching online. So if you would, put your hands together and welcome them into our family room today as we study God's Word together. And I'd like to begin today with asking a pretty serious question. By show of hands at all of our campuses, how many of you have a favorite breakfast cereal? Let me see your hands, okay? Let's see. Serious question here. We're serious about cereal. Okay, on the count of three, what I want you to do is shout out real loud your favorite breakfast cereal, whatever it is. I want everybody to be able to hear it, okay? So here we go, together, all of our campuses. One, two, three. Cookie Crisp. I heard that loud. I don't know who said it, but it was right down front. Okay. You guys are passionate about your cereal. That's awesome. Well, growing up, I had a lot of favorite cereals, but one of my favorites was Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries. Any Crunch Berry fans in the room? All right, got some. Yeah, I loved Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries. And one day, my mom came home, and she had just finished being at a Tupperware party, and she had bought these plastic Tupperware containers to store our cereal in, and she said... We can store our cereal in these containers. It'll keep it fresh longer. So she put my Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries, as well as the cereal that my other family members like, in these plastic containers, these Tupperware containers. And so we ate of them for a while, and then one day I poured me a bowl of Crunch Berries, and something wasn't right. They, these Crunch Berries, they tasted a little different, not necessarily, not necessarily bad, but just different and so I turned to my mom and I was like mom uh, my Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries they taste a little funny and she said well let me try a taste and she tried a taste and she goes well they taste fine to me and so I thought well okay maybe it's just me now I should have picked up on the fact that that was a little bit of a vague answer because my mom was trying to deceive me in that moment I didn't realize it but she was because a few weeks later she was unpacking groceries and her lie came crashing down when I pulled out of one of the grocery bags very colossal crunch. Now, I just want to let you know, this is not Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries. It may look similar, and you may get a whole lot more for a cheaper price, but it comes in a dog food bag. This is not the same thing, okay? There is a difference. And so I called my mom on it. I was like, called her out. I was like, Mom, what's going on? This is not Captain Crunch. Not the same thing. And she looked at me, and she goes, well, if you want to start paying for the food around here, then you can buy Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries. If not, you're going to have colossal or very colossal crunch. And so guess what? I learned to eat very colossal crunch, and I decided to eat whatever my parents bought me. But, you know, a few weeks passed, and I got to spend some time with my grandparents for an extended period of time, and my grandma, she bought me Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries, the real thing, because she loves me, and she knew that I, I liked them. But she would buy these little, like, individual boxes, like you get at a hotel breakfast or something, you know, like a complimentary breakfast. She'd buy these individual boxes, and there was the captain on the box, and I was so excited to get the real deal. And so I opened up my box, and I poured me a bowl of Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries, and I took my first bite, and you know what? It tasted a little different, a little weird, because I had become so accustomed to the cheap imitation that I no longer had a taste for the real thing anymore. Now, that's not a big deal when it comes to cereal, but it is a big deal. It's a huge deal when it comes to our spiritual lives. Because whether we realize it or not, this can happen in our, in our relationship with God. See, what we need to understand today is that we were created to worship. We were hardwired for worship. 
all of us will worship something in life. And what I've discovered over time is that if we don't worship God, the God who created us, we will by default worship some cheap substitute in his place. And sadly, that's what a lot of people do every single day. And sadly, if we're honest with ourselves, that's what we do at times as well. We chase after these cheap substitutes, hoping that they will bring us, hoping that they will give us what only God can provide. And what I have found out from personal experience, and you probably have too, that these cheap substitutes, they never deliver on what they promise. And that's what was going on in the time of Zephaniah, the prophet, in the Old Testament. See, over the past few weeks here at First Church, we've been in this series where we've been looking at the minor prophets in the Old Testament. We're calling this series Uncommon, because one of the main themes, major themes of the Old Testament prophets is that God was calling his people through the prophets to live an uncommon life. And we've been looking at the minor prophets because, one, they're often overlooked. We don't study these guys a lot in church. They're kind of tucked away at the end of the Old Testament, and they're called minor prophets. Who wants to study minor prophets? But they're not called minor because they're less important, just because they're books are smaller, and they're in Scripture for a reason, because God wants to teach us something. And Zephaniah, he was one of those prophets. He was given the unique responsibility of speaking for God to the people. And Zephaniah, he began serving God about 640 years before Jesus was born, if that gives you some type of time frame. And he served God during the period of the divided kingdom. In fact, when Josiah came to reign, Zephaniah was a prophet for you Old Testament students. And what's interesting is, is during Zephaniah's day when he began his ministry, God's people, they were in trouble. They were in some serious trouble. In fact, their nation was falling apart, their morality was gone, and the people themselves, they were living empty, meaningless lives. And all this was happening for a reason. It was happening because something had shifted. The people's worship had shifted from God to cheap imitations of God. In fact, in 2 Kings 23, verse 5, it describes the day and age in which uh, Zephaniah prophesied and Zephaniah ministered. And look at what it says. It says, the people burned incense. That means they worshipped. They worshipped Baal. They burned incense to the sun and the moon, to the constellations and to all the starry host. And Zephaniah will directly address this in his book. And we're going to look at it in chapter 1 here in just a minute. But let me summarize what's going on here. God's people who grew up knowing him, they've started worshiping false gods. Many different false gods. Some are worshiping idols, you know, statues that have been made by men. Others are worshiping the created order, such as things like stars and the moon and sun, praying to these objects that God had made. Now, why were they doing this? Because they thought that these gods would give them exactly what they wanted when they wanted it. They became impatient with God because the one true God wasn't giving them what they wanted when they wanted it. And so they decided to pursue something else, hoping that these false gods would give them what they wanted, would cater to their needs. Now, we can cross our arms and say, well, yeah, but that was the issue they were dealing with, and we live in a different age. I mean, we don't see people bowing down to statues now, and we don't see a lot of people praying to the moon and the stars and the sun. I mean, that's just not relevant for us today. We could say that, but we would be wrong because we're a lot more similar to that generation, Zephaniah's generation, than we sometimes care to admit. Oh, we, we may not bow down to statues 
Now, we may not offer incense to the constellations, but we have a tendency to worship idols, to worship false gods. Because an idol or a false god is anything you choose over God or place on the same level as God. See, the Bible teaches that our lives are shaped by what we pursue the most, what we care about the most. So you can call it worship, you can call it pursuit, you can call it your life's focus, you can call it whatever you want. But whatever you align your life around, that's what you're worshiping. Whatever is your first allegiance, your primary focus, that's your God. Kyle Eidemann in his book, Gods at War, writes this. He says, what you are searching for and chasing after reveals the God that is winning the war of your heart. Now let me read that again. What you are searching for and chasing after reveals the God that is winning the war of your heart. I'll never forget when I was in Bible college, I had a weekend preaching ministry. I've talked about that before in sermons. And one Sunday morning, I was teaching a Sunday school class. I didn't typically teach Sunday school. I just preached for them. But the Sunday school teacher was gone. They asked me to fill in, so I did. And that week, the lesson was on the Ten Commandments. And so I'm teaching on the Ten Commandments, and I'm trying to give people a fresh perspective of the Ten Commandments and looking at it from a New Testament viewpoint. And I said, I know you guys are familiar with the Ten Commandments, but sometimes we just treat them like a checklist, and we forget, really, the heart of the lawgiver. And I said, look at what Jesus says. You know, Jesus says, yeah, you may not have committed murder, but if you harbor anger in your heart, then you've already committed murder against somebody in your heart. He says that in the Sermon on the Mount. Or what about... Lust, yeah, you may not have committed adultery, but if you lust after someone in your heart that's not your spouse, then you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. I was trying to give, I was trying to give the people a fresh perspective and let them look at it through a New Testament lens. And as I'm going through the different Ten Commandments and explaining this, there's this older lady sitting in the classroom, and there weren't that many people in there, but she spoke up, and she was pretty loud, and I guess she got offended that I was doing that. I guess she thought I was, like, questioning her faith. I don't know, but she spoke up, and she said, well, Chad, I know one commandment that I've always kept. I was like, well, I wasn't really asking, but okay, what is that one commandment? And she goes, I have never bowed down and worshiped an idol. And what she meant was she never physically bowed down and worshipped a statue. But then that gave me the opportunity to explain how that command, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, that command is the one commandment we've broken probably more than any other. You see, more times than not, idolatry is the trunk of the tree through which all other sin grows. And right now, Whatever sin you're struggling with, I imagine there's probably a false god behind it. See, false gods are very real today. Let me explain what I'm talking about. I had a conversation one time with a man who had been fired from his job years ago. He was the president of a bank. He was fired from his job because he was embezzling money from his own bank. And not only was he fired... He also was arrested and spent some time in prison. And I had lunch with him after he had got out of prison and he had found Jesus and Jesus changed his life. And actually he was in ministry. He was serving a church when I met him. But as I'm having lunch with him and talking with him, he said, you know what the funny thing was, Chad, when I was doing that, when I was embezzling all that money? He said, I didn't need the money. He said, I had tons of money. I had all I ever needed. My family was set. He said, I didn't need the money. 
So why did he do it? Because money had become his God. He had put God on the throne, I mean, he had put money on the throne of his heart. And so that's where he found his significance. That's where he found his self-worth. And so he was going to pursue it, no matter the cost. There was a guy that I was in college with, Bible college with, and he would lie all the time. We would catch him in lies all the time. And most of the time when he lied, he was always trying to make himself look better, trying to promote himself. Sometimes he would even lie about other people to make himself look better. You guys have probably met individuals like that. And here's the thing. This guy had an awesome personality. He was fun to hang around. He was gifted and talented. All the girls thought he was good looking. I mean, he had everything. There was no reason to overcompensate by lying. Why'd he do it? Because he had put his self-image on the throne of his heart. It was all about him, all about me and his mind. And so he had to pursue a certain self-image no matter the cost. Not too far from where I used to preach, there was a guy who preached at another church who had to resign from his position. And the reason why he resigned was because he was caught having an affair with a woman in the church. They were, having, they were caught having the affair actually in the church building. That's how bad it was. And he was asked to resign. I didn't really know him, so I didn't get to talk to him during that whole time. But we did have a mutual friend and a few years later, after all that stuff had passed, I got to meet this guy through my mutual friend, and he told me a story. And he said that he had struggled with pornography from the time he was in middle school, junior high. And he kept thinking that one day it would just go away, and then he got to be in college, and he was engaged, and he thought, when I get married, then it'll go away. This struggle I have with pornography, it'll just go away, because then I'll be married, and I won't have to worry about it anymore. He got married, the struggle did not disappear, and it even led to other things to the point he eventually had an affair. And I remember him looking me in the eye and saying, Chad, I knew it was wrong, but as if there was something deep inside me that was controlling me. Now, he wasn't denying that God gives us free will, but he was saying there was more than just the temptation itself. There was something else going on. What had happened? He had allowed something else to sit on the throne of his heart besides God. You can call it the God of sexual pleasure or pleasure, whatever you want to call it. But until he dealt with that false God that was ruling his life, he was never going to overcome his struggle. Oh, we may not bow down and worship statues or worship the stars, the moon, and the sun. But false gods are very, very real. And most of the time, they take control of our lives without us even realizing how bad it's gotten. Because most of the time, it's not that we just sit back and say, okay, God, we're going to push you off the throne of our hearts and we're going to let an idol come in and take us over. That's not what we do. We don't look at God and say, okay, God, you better move off the seat of my heart because I'm going to let something else come in and I'm going to worship it. That's not what we do. No, it's that we believe the lie that we can worship something else alongside God. In John 8, verse 32, Jesus says that when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. We've all heard that before, but I've also found that the opposite of that is true. If the truth can set us free, then lies can hold us hostage. And one of Satan's biggest lies that we often buy into is that we can worship both God and something else at the same time. And that's what the people in Zephaniah's day were doing. And God's pretty upset about it. 
Turn with me, if you would, to Zephaniah chapter 1, and look at what God says to the people in verse 4. He's warning the people, and he's saying, if you don't stop this, destruction is coming. And look at what he says, verse 4, Zephaniah 1. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal. Of course, Baal is a false god, god of the Canaanite people. The names of the pagan and idolatrous priest. Those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord, swear to Yahweh. And look at the next three words. And who also. So they bow down and they worship the Lord. And who also swear by Molech, another false god, god of the Ammonites. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Did you catch what the people are doing here? It's not that they've denied the existence of God. It's not that they've stopped worshiping God. They're still worshiping him. But they're worshiping other gods right along with him, thinking that that's okay. And they're selling it to themselves by saying, hey, we're not denying the existence of God. We just want these other gods too. And God is saying, that's not acceptable. That's not okay. And I'm not going to tolerate it anymore. You see, God refuses to share the throne of your heart with anyone or anything else. And that's why Jesus teaches in Matthew 4.10, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Now, why does Jesus say this? Because there's only room for one on the throne of your heart. And when you try to make room for something else, what you end up doing is pushing God off the throne of your heart. And this type of single-hearted devotion, single-hearted worship that God expects from us, it's pretty rare in our culture today. You might say it's pretty uncommon. It's hard to find. Because we live in a culture where people want to keep their options open. Kyle Ottoman goes on to say in his book, God's at War, this, we live in a world where no strings attached is a popular choice when it comes to relationships. We seem to be a generation with one commitment, keeping our options open. The only relationship God is interested in, however, is one that is exclusive and completely committed. He is not interested in an open relationship with you. He won't consider sharing the space, uh, space on the love seat of your heart. His throne only has one seat. It would kind of be like when Alice and I got married, if I turned to her and I said, okay, I'm going to give you Friday nights. Friday night is going to be our date night, and you and me are going to go out on a date every single Friday night. Is that cool? Yeah, that's fine. That's our date night. Set aside for us. And so on a Tuesday night, you walk into a restaurant, and you see me sitting there with another woman. Say, Chad, what you doing? Well, I'm here on a date. And he looked at me and said, that's not Allison. I know. It's not Friday night. He said, it doesn't matter. You're married to Allison. Hey, listen, I promised Allison I would give her every Friday night, and I'm faithful to that. I'm giving her every Friday night. It's Tuesday. I can go out with whoever I want to on Tuesday night. You would look at me like I was crazy. You'd probably on the phone to one of our elders immediately after that. I know what would happen. Guys, that would never happen. I wouldn't do it. Allison wouldn't let me do it. And you guys wouldn't let me do it. We know that. That's weird. Because we'd all agree, that's not commitment, is it? And yet, that's how we treat God sometimes. God, I'll give you this day of the week, and I'll be faithful. But I'm going to worship another God on this day, or on this day, or on that day. God, I'm committed to you when I want to be. I'm committed to you when it fits my schedule. I'm committed to you when it doesn't interfere with any other priorities I have. And what are we telling God when we do that? 
We're telling him we're not really committed to him. And that's what the people are doing in Zephaniah's day. Oh, they claim to worship God. But they're worshiping other gods at the same time. And what ended up happening was that the throne of their hearts couldn't be shared. And these false gods were winning the battle of their hearts. And their lives were an absolute mess. See, it got to the point that it wasn't just they were worshiping these false gods. These false gods were controlling them. And that's what idols do. Idols will end up controlling us. They will change our behavior if we let them. Let me give you an example of this. In Zephaniah 1 verse 9, God is speaking to the people and he's talking about a day of judgment is coming. If you guys do not reform and repent and change. And look at what he says. He says, on that day I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold. Now what's he talking about? I'm going to punish God. Say, I'm, going to, I'm going to punish those who avoid stepping on the threshold of their homes? What's, what's he talking about? What you have to understand is, in this day and age, pagan cultures would have shrines to these false gods in their homes, and they believed that the spirit of that god, that false god, dwelled in the threshold. And so what pagans would do when they would enter their home, they would step over the threshold as as not to upset the, the deity, not to offend the deity in any way. And God's people are doing this. Before they walk in their homes, they're stepping over the threshold because they might offend some deity that lives in the threshold. Now that's crazy. And God's saying, you guys are acting like fools. You know better than that. But yet you're allowing these idols to control you. You're allowing them to change your behavior to the point where your lives are revolving around them. Now that's a minor example, even though God's pretty mad about it. Remember we mentioned that false god Molech? He was the god that promised financial security, financial peace. But in order to have financial security, you know what you had to do? You had to worship him by sacrificing one of your children to him. And God's people were doing that to have financial security. So they thought. Now again, we may shake our heads and say, we would never do something like that today. Really? How many people do you know that have abandoned their morals and done corrupt and crooked things just to get an extra dollar? You don't think we'll do dumb stuff in order to have financial success in life? People do it all all the time. These idols were controlling them, and here's what they had to learn the hard way. These idols weren't delivering on their promises. And God's going to tell them that. If you look at Zephaniah 1 verse 13, he says to the people, their riches will be taken away from them and their houses will be laid waste. They will build houses but not live in them. They will plant great fields but not drink their wine. God is saying, you're trusting in these idols to take care of you. But you know what's going to happen? Everything that you've worked so hard for is going to be gone. And your idols, they're not going to protect you. They're not going to keep you safe because I'm the one that's in control, not them. And how often do we put all of our stock into the things of this world, hoping that they will bring us only what God can deliver? And we end up feeling empty in the end. That's what's happening in this day. And the end result, by pursuing idols, the people had become indifferent towards God. In fact, in Zephaniah 1.12, it says the people are walking around saying, now, these are God's people. And they're walking around saying, the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. In other words... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we do. God's indifferent towards us, so we're going to be indifferent towards him. God's not going to do anything good or bad. God's up there. We believe he's there. But he's not active in our lives. 
And the reason why he wasn't active is because they weren't pursuing him anymore. Their lives were a mess, and God is warning, you're headed for destruction. And the book of Zephaniah is given to us as a warning to make sure that we don't make the same mistakes. And so let me ask today, is there anything right now in your life that's trying to push God off the throne of your heart? Is there anything right now that's trying to control you? Anything right now that you would call a God that is competing for your attention, for your life's focus? Because we may not bow down and worship little statues today, but idols are very real. And some of you might still be thinking, well, I don't know about that. I mean, I don't think that this really applies to me. Well, let me just present a few things that we experience in life, that we deal with in life, and see if we have a tendency to turn them into idols. I have with me today, if you haven't noticed already, a shopping cart. And the reason why I brought a shopping cart up on stage is because Satan likes to sell us a lot of lies. And I've got some of those lies with me here. And let's see if Satan's been trying to sell them to you. The first lie is the lie of money. We might call it the God of money. Do we have a tendency to turn money into a God? You betcha. Happens all the time. And money is a God that's been around for a long, long time. And deep down, if we're honest today, we've all worshipped it before. I mean, we've all had that fantasy where we've, or that dream, I guess, where we've won the lottery or inherited a bunch of money and we've thought, hey, if I had all this money, then I'd really be living. Then I would really be happy. And we intellectually know that money will, will never buy happiness. I mean, we know that and we even say that, but some of us would like to give it a shot, right? Mark Twain once wrote, some men worship rank, some worship heroes, some worship power, some worship God, and over these ideals, they dispute and cannot unite. But they all worship money. Money oftentimes motivates us and drives us in life. And maybe that's why Jesus says that money is one of the chief competitors against God for our worship. In Luke 16, 13, Jesus says, You cannot serve both God and money. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus. Jesus doesn't have a problem with us earning money. Jesus doesn't have a problem with us even gaining wealth. He wants us to use that wealth for his kingdom purposes, but he doesn't have a problem with people having wealth. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is, if you put wealth on the throne of your heart and you expect to find significance and purpose and meaning to life through wealth, if you want to find contentment and security through wealth, you're never going to find it. Because money is a false god who's here one day and gone the very next. How about this? How about our stuff? People turn stuff into a God? Happens a lot, doesn't it? People think that their stuff defines them. That they try to find their identity in their stuff. And they think, oh, if only I could you know, get that new car or build that bigger house or have, the, have that motorcycle I've always wanted or that boat that I've always wanted or nicer clothes or whatever if only I could get more stuff then I'd be happy then I'd be satisfied then I'd be content but like money stuff is a God that's here one day and gone the next and you can base your identity in your stuff but it really gets you nowhere I'll never forget a family asking me one time to go and visit 
one of their family members in the hospital, and this guy was not a Christian. The family told me that, and they wanted me to go talk to him because he was terminal, he was dying. And so I went to his bedside. They brought me in as kind of the ringer, you know, to talk about spiritual matters. It's never a comfortable conversation, but I've done it on occasion. And I sat down beside this guy's bed, and we talked for a while. We made small talk. And then before I got ready to leave, I said, is there anything else you want to talk to me about? You just never know how they're going to respond because they know why you're there. He said, well, yeah. He called me preacher. He said, yeah, preacher, there is something I want to talk to you about. I said, okay, here it comes. And he said, you know so-and-so? I was like, yeah, it was one of his family members. I said, yeah, I know so-and-so. He said, make sure that so-and-so never gets my lunchbox collection. And I thought, what are you talking about? And so I had to ask for more information. This guy had collected lunchboxes for years, and apparently he had a barn full of lunchboxes that were worth a whole lot of money. And on his deathbed, I mean, he died within two days of that conversation. On his deathbed, he's worried about his lunchboxes. And he didn't have any relationship with God. You don't think we can worship stuff? You don't think that we, can't, that we don't ever align our lives around our stuff? Stuff is a God that we pursue. And it's a God that's here one day and gone the next. What about this one? This is a big one, isn't it? Pleasure. And there are a lot of little gods that fall under this category of pleasure. The gods of sex, of entertainment, of food. And the list goes on and on. And we live in a culture today that is driven by pleasure. We want what we want and we want it now. And here's the odd part. Sex and food, and for that matter, entertainment, was created by God. God wants us to enjoy life. Contrary to popular belief and contrary to what some churches teach, God is not a fuddy-duddy. God wants us to enjoy life. God's not a killjoy. He wants us to enjoy this life that he's given us, but he wants us to enjoy it within safe parameters. And so he's given us parameters. He's given us boundaries to enjoy pleasure but if we start to practice those things or pursue those things outside of the boundaries that he's established, God's word tells us we will wreck our lives. That's what will come is destruction. And yet we don't care about that. A lot of times we just want what we want. And so we put pleasure on the throne of our, our hearts. I once heard somebody say, if you make a good thing an ultimate thing, it will become a destructive thing. And some of us know from painful experiences how true that statement really is. What about self-image? Ever turn our self-image into a God? I think it happens a lot, and social media has just magnified this, hasn't it? Some people just want to have that perfect self-image, and so they pursue that at all costs. It's pursuing the God of me, really. That's what it's all about. Narcissism is a term that refers to an excessive interest in oneself. And in Greek mythology, there was this young man named Narcissus who was so good-looking that he couldn't take his eyes off himself. And one day he got a glimpse of himself in a pool and in a reflection, and he just sat there for days and days and days looking at himself to the point that he eventually starved to death. And you know, that's what happens when we have an unhealthy view of self. We're just totally focused on ourselves. It leads to spiritual death. We spiritually starve ourselves. We starve our relationship with God. And yet we live in a culture that is me-obsessed. We turn ourselves into our own gods. And it's funny, not really funny, it's sad. When I look at some churches and wonder why they're not doing more, 
I mean, I know churches that have great facilities and they've got the money to carry out the mission of God and they've got the people to do it, but for some reason they're just stagnant. Nothing is going on. And I think sometimes that happens because even though you've got a lot of people who believe the right stuff intellectually, in their hearts they've put themselves on the throne. And it's all about their needs and their wants. And they miss what God wants, and they miss that there are people all around them who are dying and going to hell. They're not worried about those people. They're just worried about their own selves. Making yourself a God can be extremely, extremely disruptive. The God of me always leads to spiritual death. And what's interesting is most church conflicts, when they happen... They happen not because there's a legitimate spiritual reason. (laughs) They happen because somebody isn't getting what they want. They're personally offended. And the God of self reigns supreme. And so they chase after what they want and they end up hurting the church in the process. What about the God of success? A lot of people try to find their identity and their accolades and their achievements and their awards and their job performance, and their career, and their degrees. They try to find their identity, their identity and their drives and their ambitions. Now, God has given us drive and ambition. He wants us to have drive and ambition, but sometimes drive and ambition can become a distraction to who God is in our lives, and we can let Satan hijack those things to where they start to interfere with our relationship with God. There's a few more false gods I've got here that I want to share with you. What about people? We ever turn people into a false god? Oh yeah. Whether it's worshiping some hero that we have or maybe it's just seeking the approval of people and wanting to be popular. Maybe it's doing things where we sacrifice our own morals in order to win the approval of others. Or maybe it's just loving an individual person more than you love God. It happens all the time. And again, don't misunderstand me. God created us to be relational beings. God wants us to have healthy human connection, but our horizontal relationship should never interfere with our vertical relationship. And sadly, sometimes it does. When my son Alex was born, we were in the hospital, and I was holding him, and one of my family members stopped by to visit us. And she meant well. I don't think she really meant by this what she said, but she still said it. She looked at me holding Alex, and she goes... You know, your life will never be empty again now that you have a child. And I remember that hit me wrong. And I love my kids. I love my kids to death. And they bring me so much joy. I love my family to death. I love Allison to death. I wouldn't trade them for the world. And you guys know that. But the reason why I feel like I'm living a full life is not because I have kids. I know a lot of people who have kids that are very empty. The reason why I'm living a full life is because I have Jesus. And sometimes we get that mixed up. There are some people that will make any sacrifice in the world for their family. And again, the Bible says we should love our families and all that. I'm not denying any of that. But they'll make any sacrifice for their families, but not for God. It's dangerous territory. What about what's easy? We ever make the path of least resistance our God? The path of safety and security? The path of what's easy? Do we ever make that our God? See, the Bible teaches that sometimes what's easiest is not what's best. What's easiest is not what's right. And God even calls us to make sacrifices and to take steps of faith and to take risks for Him. But yet, if you're worshiping the God of what's easy, just wanting to do what's easy and simple all the time, 
well, you may not be doing what God wants you to do. And that's what some people want. They just want an easy life. They just want to lay back and kind of relax all the time and do whatever's easy. And like I said, what's easy is not always what's right. And there's one more I'm going to mention. There are others besides this, these eight that I have up here. But the last one that I want to mention, I've saved for last on purpose. It's the God of religion. See, some people worship a religion more than they worship God. What I mean by that is they come to church and they carry out these religious practices and they feel very good about themselves because they're doing the religious thing, but they don't have a transformational relationship with God. They don't have a real authentic relationship with God. And when this happens, what ends up going on in churches is that people worship methods more than they worship the mission. They worship tradition more than they worship God because they're worshiping a religion rather than worshiping God himself. And here's the thing, methods, they change, and methods exist to serve the mission, not the other way around. And sometimes we get so caught up in the methods that we've established that we miss what's most important. I remember uh, Bob Russell in his book, When God Builds a Church, Bob Russell was the senior minister of Southeast Christian Church in Louisville for years, and Bob Russell in his book said that there was one Easter Sunday that they did not sing Up From the Grave He Arose, and they had done it for several years in a row before that, and they didn't this one Easter Sunday, but he said it was the largest Easter Sunday that they had ever had, that a lot of people came forward that day, it was just a huge day of celebration, everybody was excited, and this lady caught him outside in the lobby and chewed him out for not singing Up From the Grave He Arose. And he said, yeah, but we sang a lot of other good Easter songs. And she said, it just didn't feel like Easter to me. And she walked off mad. And Bob said, I didn't know how to respond to that. Because what was she mad about? Jesus is alive. And we celebrated that. And people responded to that. And were baptized into his resurrection, death and resurrection. And yet she leaves church mad? What's she worshiping? It's a true story. I, it's always odd when a preacher says it's a true story, but this is a true story, I promise. The first person that I ever baptized, I was in the eighth grade. I was helping with a vacation Bible school at our church, and I was helping in this, certain, in this one kid's class, and this, this kid came up to me and wanted me to baptize him at the end of the week. So the youth minister and me, we talked with his parents, and they were okay with it. He was good to go, and we baptized him the last night of vacation Bible school. And everybody was all excited, and of course it was a good night. But when I baptized this kid, I'd never done that before. So I just kind of copied what I had seen other people do. And in that church that I grew up in, they would always raise their right hand when they would baptize somebody. And I don't do that anymore, and I don't think many people do that. But years ago, they would always raise a hand. Maybe some do. There's nothing wrong with raising a hand or not raising a hand, but it's on the Bible, but, you know, it's just a tradition. And so I was just copying what I had seen other people do, and I raised my hand, but I raised my left hand, not even thinking. You know, I'm nervous. I'm in eighth grade. I'm baptizing somebody. It's a big deal, you know. And I raised my left hand. And afterwards, you know, people are excited, and they're celebrating and whatever. And this guy walked up to me who was on staff at the church and let me know that I needed to get my head straight because I raised the wrong hand. I needed to get my act together because that was embarrassing that I raised my left hand instead of my right. Now again, the Bible doesn't say anything about that whatsoever. <laughs> but it's a tradition that apparently he was very concerned about to the point that he, didn't, he wasn't even celebrating the new life that somebody had just received because he was so concerned about it. Now, these are just some of the false gods that we pursue. There are others. And let me ask, what is it for you? What is it 
that's trying to push God off the throne of your heart, because there's something. Satan loves to sell us these lies, and he tries hard to get us to buy into them. So there's something right now. And what we need to know is that the difference between all of these false gods that are out there and our Heavenly Father is the difference between hype and hope. Because hype, it sounds good in the moment, and that's what the false gods of this world offer us. But hype leaves you wanting more always. Hope is what God offers us, and hope is eternal. That's why 1 John 2.17 says, The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So what, what do we do? If there are all these false gods that they're competing for our worship, competing for our attention, what do we do? Well, what we need to do is ask. Examine ourselves and ask. What are we pursuing the most? What do we want the most out of life? And if there's anything that we want or we're seeking more than God, it's time for us to kick that thing off the throne of our heart and seek God with all of our hearts. That's what Zephaniah tells us to do. Zephaniah 2 verse 3 says, Seek the Lord, all you humble in the land. We're to humble ourselves and seek God with everything we have and do everything we possibly can to get rid of those false gods. And the reason why Zephaniah tells us to do this is found in chapter 3 verse 17. If you want to jump over there. He says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Do you get what Zephaniah is saying? Zephaniah is warning, if you don't change, if you don't stop pursuing these false gods, destruction is coming, but God doesn't want destruction to come upon your life. The reason why God wants to have the throne of your heart is not to control you or to just cast out orders or whatever, He wants to be on the throne of your heart because he knows what's best for you. He created you, and he doesn't want you to mess up the life that he's given you. He doesn't want you to be headed for destruction. Instead, he wants to save you, and he wants to surround all the trouble that these false gods have caused with his love. God wants to be on the throne of our hearts because he knows what's best for us. He wants to rescue us from the destruction that's headed our way. The question is, will you let him? Bob Goff is a well-known Christian author and speaker, and he wrote the popular book, Love Does. And there's a story in that book about his son. Bob says that his son loves to play the game bigger and better. I don't know if you've ever played that game before, but basically you start off with something that is of little value, and then you go for an extended period of time and keep trying to trade it to get something bigger or better. And he said one day his son was playing this game with a whole bunch of neighborhood kids, and his son started off with a dime, and he went out to trade it for stuff. And it got to the point that his son eventually traded, uh, traded for a mattress, and then he traded the mattress for a stuff, or I'm sorry, a mounted elk's head, and then he traded the mounted elk's head uh, for a a ping pong table and then he traded the ping pong table eventually for a Dodge pickup truck, a used Dodge pickup truck. And Bob says, true story, my son started with a dime and he ended with a Dodge. And then he said, what if my son had said, no, I'm not going to play the game. I just want to hang on to my dime because it's something I didn't have before. He would have never got anything bigger or better. See, what God wants for us is something bigger or better than what we've settled for right now. 
He wants to offer us not just a better life. He wants to offer us the best life. But God is telling us in order for us to get it, we've got to give up what we're hanging on to. Whatever the God is that you're hanging on to and you're clinging to and you find comfort in, you've got to be willing to give it up so that he can give you the better life that you were created to live. He's willing and ready today to give you that life. You just have to let him. Our God is mighty to save. Will you let him save you from the hold that whatever false God is in your life right now, the hold that that false God has on you, will you let him save you today? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time we've had to meet together as your people. And Father, to open up your word and look at an obscure passage that maybe we don't study a lot, but has a lot of application for us today. Yes, we may not bow down and worship statues or the sun or the moon or the stars, but Father, there are false gods competing for our attention. Maybe, may we never let them have their way with us. Father, may we turn them over to you May we always seek you with all of our hearts, have that uncommon devotion, uncommon worship for you, so that you can give us the life that we were created to live. It's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen.